1: It. That does it for Thank us tonight. Banfield starts now.
2: Hi there. Welcome to Thursday post debate on News Nations. Great to have you here. Um, I wasn't on last night because the debate was on tonight. Back to the true crime format that you have come to um, on, uh, you know, weeknights at 10 o'clock, and I love you for it. And I have a cornucopia lined up for you tonight, um, like this one, the life that we all dream of living with, like, Rolls Royces and mansions and then, like, just limitless money to do whatever we want, like, start a business or, you know, start a show. <laughs> well, there is a couple that kind of had that, and now they just don't at all because she is in jail Uh, accused of having put a hit out on him. This is them, obviously, in in better times, Mark and Tatiana Remley. Tonight, though, this very strange little twist. Um, After she was accused of putting a hit out on him and then she was arrested and thrown in the clink, he, well, we all thought he went into hiding. And he may not have gone into hiding because there is one reporter that found him and talk to him face to face. And tonight she is going to be on the show and uh, tell us all about that conversation and what is on his mind these days. Not only that, what about the whole notion that they're very, very sexy lifestyle, these two, because they were on that sexy show on Showtime called uh, Sanctum, Naked Sanctum. Is that gonna factor into her case? Is she gonna be like scarlet lettered before the jury even hears the evidence? Because I've been at a case like that before And the victim of that case is live on this show tonight. Her name is Cindy Summer. You can Google it, but do not leave before you hear from her about what her life was like from being scarlet-lettered in a murder trial. Um, Then John Wayne Gacy, look, it's it's the story that never goes away, the killer clown, the, the prolific serial killer who, you know, was executed for killing 33 men and boys and burying them in his basement. And now we get to hear his voice for the first time in tapes, Dozens and dozens of hours of tapes, pre-trial prep. And the podcaster who has those tapes just dropped some chef's kiss episodes. He's going to join us tonight because Gacy himself talks about the possibility of accomplices and more victims. So tonight we're going to talk to him about that. You are also going to hear Gacy's voice. You may never have heard it before. And you probably have not heard him say the things that, for the first time, we are only hearing this week. So that's coming as well. And then um, Lori Vallow, there's another one, the, the the true crime gift that just keeps on giving. You probably think of Lori Vallow uh, connected to her Idaho murders, right? Her two children, uh, the wife of her boyfriend, whom she wanted to marry. So they killed that wife, and then they got to marry. What do you know? Until, of course, they were both thrown in the clink. Lori was... Um, Tried and convicted. Sentenced to life. Her husband, Chad, still yet to be tried. But here she is again in a brand new kind of orange. It doesn't look like the Idaho courtroom, does it? You're smart. This is Arizona. She got herself a, a free ticket to Arizona and not the kind that us uh, snowbirds like. This is the kind where she has to face music again. Lori Vallow. More murders? Seriously? Okay, if you're doing math and I hate that, um, but it's important with Lori Vallow because it looks like it's possible that she's up to like six, Uh, six murders or suspicious deaths all within just a few months of each other. What? Okay, so I'm going to tell you all about what happened in that courtroom today. Uh, We'll give you a better look at her as well. And don't forget, she was in uh, she was a hair and makeup expert before she ended up in the clink. So she knows how to do jail hair and makeup as well. Important topic, and I will tell you why shortly. First, though, on paper, from a distance, Mark Remley, man, did that guy have it made. A $5 million mansion, three Rolls Royces, a Ferrari, and an estate in Hawaii, and that's just the tip of the very wealthy iceberg. Uh, He had that super hot younger wife, her name is Tatiana, and... um, Tatiana's whims, he was all too happy to indulge. And they were not cheap whims, my friends. No, it was like a cycling studio and a polo team and stuff like that. Not like, I want a new bikini. Uh, there was also the multi-million dollar Cirque du Soleil type show, the equestrian show that he bankrolled for her. Behind the scenes, the couple had a relationship that's been described, however, as weird and volatile. And volatile. And that, my friends, is the G-rated way that I can explain that relationship. Uh, They partied in a lot of sex clubs, they partied with prostitutes and strippers, and some of it was not very behind the scenes, I might add. Uh, Mark and Tatiana actually had this. Take a look at, man, that video. I almost have to shield my eyes except for I'm doing the show. Um, They had feature roles under very different names on a very sexy Showtime series called Naked Sanctum. It's all about, well, I think you can see what it's about. It's with, like, couples who are into kink, you know? It's actually a really good show. Uh, But, of course, all of this awesomeness imploded when Tatiana allegedly put out a $2 million hit on her husband, Mark, just a few weeks after filing for divorce, I might add. Lucky for Mark, he got wind of the scheme, and Tatiana was busted at a Starbucks after allegedly making a down payment to an undercover police officer. Now she is actually uh, posting up uh, without bail, and she's in jail, and she's facing charges of solicitation of murder, among other things. And it was widely reported that Mark went into hiding. But my first guest tonight says that may not be true. Laura Place is a reporter for The Coast News, and they're the only journalist to have had an on-the-record conversation with Mark, Remley, and Laura joins me now. First of all, congratulations on tracking him down uh, because, Laura, I have been trying to do that for quite some time, and you did it. So spill did tea and let me know about your conversation with Mark.
1: Yeah, so thank you for having me. Um, to track down Mark, I actually just went to his house in Del Mar, and I wasn't thinking he would be there when I went. I had just heard that the house had burned down and about this case, and I went there just to see what the house looked like, and I found him there um, just sitting in the garage, and we chatted a bit, and he confirmed that he was Mark, and then he asked me if I wanted to see the house. Um, and from the outside, the structure was still standing, but you could see getting close to the windows, there was ash, and it was clear there'd been a fire inside, so, um, yeah, he let me come in and do a tour, and um, it was, you know, you could tell it had been a house with a lot of grandeur, there was, it was a beautiful, like you said, multi-million dollar home, Um, But just completely destroyed, unlivable, Um, and he claimed that she had burned down his house, which um, police have not confirmed. They're still investigating the fire, but he was pretty adamant that she had done this.
2: Laura, it is amazing that that's, I mean, you know, sometimes timing is everything, and certainly with a burned out house, no one's going to think he's actually there. So many reporters had knocked on doors, looked for him everywhere, asked friends, couldn't track him down. And there you are. Knock, knock. Who's there? So uh, tell me a little bit about your, your conversation. Did, did you get some insight into who Mark is, um, who they were together and what he thinks about everything that's transpired and not just the fire?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, Mark was fairly guarded, um, which makes sense since I had just shown up at his home out of nowhere. Um, but he, he was open about the fact that, um, you know, what had happened with Tatiana that he heard from their mutual friend that she had offered $2 million, um, for this friend to, to take out Mark. Um, and yeah, when he shared this, he was, he was, uh, seemed to be in disbelief, um, that this had actually happened. And this was about, uh month or two afterwards. Um, so yeah, he, he seemed shaken up, but, um, he was willing to, to talk about it at the time.
2: And then you also got another really good scoop. You were in the courtroom when Tatiana made an appearance and I think it's, it's your, um, imagery that was captured, right? When, when she walked into the courtroom looking nothing like the, ultra-sexy minx that she's been on all of her party pictures and her Instagram, etc. The pictures, I mean, this is is jail, right? Uh, Give me your impressions having been in the room.
1: Yeah, so this was the first appearance of hers in court that I saw. She had also had, um, I think, an arraignment in August. Um, uh, Tatiana was pretty stoic. It was a very brief appearance. Um, It was only for a few minutes, and she didn't really say anything. She wasn't really called on to say anything, but she was polite to the judge, and Um, yeah, she, she wasn't very emotive. She just was kind of there to have her hearing and then, and then head out. Any family of hers, any supporters, anybody there in the courtroom for her? Um, at least not that I knew of. Um, but Mark was there, um, and, and was just kind of watching stoically. And, um, he's been at other hearings since as well. Okay.
2: Stoic, like, is in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, There is such an unspoken drama that plays out in every courtroom that I've ever been in and that I've ever covered. And it's very different when you're there. Can you give me your best description as a reporter of the tension that might have existed between Mark and Tatiana at that moment in court?
1: Uh, I suppose from what I saw, they weren't facing each other. It wasn't a situation where it's, you know, she's off to the side. Um, So a little bit less of that, like, face-to-face kind of drama, perhaps. But it, it was tense. I mean just to imagine that you're in the room with someone who, um, you know, police caught in a sting operation as planning to to have you taken out. I mean, um, and I wasn't watching his face. I was mostly watching hers during that brief hearing. But the feeling in the room was definitely, definitely tense. Um, it, interesting to witness for sure as someone covering the case.
2: Did they get a look at each other? Did they ever actually see each other?
1: Not as far as I know.
2: Sometimes it's hard to get those angles, too. But look at you. Great job. Um, Laura Place with the Coast News. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your journalism with us tonight. And um, we'll have you back early and often. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. So my next guest knows a thing or two about how a jury might react to good looks and a sexy story. Cynthia Summer was accused and then convicted of committing the unthinkable, poisoning her husband, Todd, when he was a 23-year-old Marine sergeant. Todd died suddenly in the middle of the night from cardiac arrhythmia in 2002. And the state told a jury that forensic investigators had found extremely high levels of arsenic in Todd's liver and Todd's kidneys, like enough arsenic to kill a couple of elephants. And then they really started to pile on. They said after Todd's death, um, the actions of Cindy, a mother of four children, seemed unbecoming unbecoming a newly minted widow. Cindy's new breast augmentation was brought into light and her sex life was questioned. Details of her interactions with other men, even a wet T-shirt contest, were all put on blast for that courtroom. And I might add for the national broadcast audience that was following the trial. I mean, nobody responds to trauma like that, right? We all grieve exactly the same way. So she must be guilty, right? Must be sitting there on the stand with her two-tone hair, the highlights growing out, an invisible black eye, not a stitch of makeup. Maybe it's no wonder the jury convicted her of killing Todd in just 12 hours. Life, no possibility of parole goodbye. Here's the hard part to compute. There was never any evidence of arsenic in the House. There was never any evidence that Cindy had ever bought any arsenic, sought out any arsenic, searched for any arsenic. Nobody really questioned that Todd would have had to ingest about 12 pounds of ant bait to achieve the levels of arsenic. And that just didn't seem to matter. While that is a problem, here is um, an even bigger problem. Like when I say big, colossal. Todd did not die of arsenic poisoning. The lab got it wrong. Let me repeat that. The lab got it wrong. His liver sample had somehow been contaminated because no other tissues in Todd's body showed the ridiculous levels of arsenic as described in his liver and kidneys. Thank God for us. Thank God for us that the U.S. Marines had saved some of his body samples. And upon retesting those samples, guess what? The truth was discovered, no arsenic, which meant, and this is the most important thing, no murder happened. Nobody murdered Todd. He really did die from cardiac arrhythmia, not arsenic. So, after more than two and a half years locked up for something she did not do, Cynthia Summer was exonerated. And Cynthia Summer joins me now live. Gosh, it is good to see you again. I cannot believe that it's been 15 years since we last were face to face. After um, all of this, you look fabulous. Um, How have you been? How how has your life been, Cindy?
3: Good. Just busy. Um, I've been remarried and have my children are grown, which is crazy. Um, Christian, the youngest, is 22. So a lot, a lot of time has passed since I think I've seen you last.
2: Yeah, I mean, grown kids, right? I had babies, and now I've got an 18-year-old as well. Um, and you, you do look fabulous, and I'm so glad that we can see each other instead of a jailhouse interview. Thanks. You know, um, Our audience might not know this, but you had four kids, and they got farmed out across the country to be cared for while you were in, imprisoned um, awaiting trial, and then you remained you know, behind bars while you fought, the conviction, and so you had a lot of time away from those kids. They had a lot of time away from their mom, and they didn't see their dad either. Were you able to, as much as anyone could, were you able to repair the loss of, of those years?
3: Yeah, it took a long time, and it took a lot of work and struggles, and eventually, they all came back to live with me after and we've just grown closer as a family because of all that um, and being apart for so
4: long.
2: You know, one thing I didn't realize and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Cynthia, but Tatiana Remley, who uh, you probably saw in the setup, has some extraordinary uh, sexy photos and lived a very sexy lifestyle with Mark, I should say. Um, She is incarcerated currently in the same the same uh, facility where you were, is that true? That's true. I saw that and was
3: astonished that this case is a lot, that, that she's where she's at. I, I know exactly where she's at and what, what she's going through.
2: So so let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I would propose having seen some of the early, and again, not courtroom, but early evidence in her case that it's entirely different from yours. Uh, things don't look good in, in her case. Um, but one thing that's very visible is her sexy lifestyle, her sexy looks. And I would love to hear from you your thoughts on how that's going to play into the jurisprudence, the, you know, what's supposed to be a fair process uh, when she actually goes to trial. What do you think?
3: Uh, I I, I don't know how it will play out for her. I didn't know how it was going to play out for me. And it's definitely something that I think weighed very heavily on my jury. I think they just overlooked anything that had to do with science and any yeah, experts that testified, anything that we had to say, they they just really didn't take in, take any of that into account and listen to what the prosecution said about my behavior and my quote-unquote motives um, for something that didn't even happen that they had made up. So they took my behavior and fit it into their box um, to make a case.
2: And... Did you ever get I, the I feeling, Cynthia, when you looked across what? the courtroom at the jury? I'm sorry about the. We have a delay, so there's some some crosstalk. But the, did you ever get a feeling when you looked across the courtroom at the jury that there there was just a whole lot of disdain? I think there were seven women and five men on your panel. Did you get a feeling from them during the during the case?
3: I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the jury. I don't think I looked at them a whole lot, but I I just, I remember anything that was said about me was derogatory. If it could be said, it was said. You know, I always, they opened up that closet and just pulled out every skeleton that I ever had and just aired it out for anyone to hear. And so... That, I think, weighed heavily and painted a picture of me that maybe I could have had that in my capabilities to do something like that, instead of looking at the fact that, you know, the arsenic levels was impossible, that there was um, breaks in the chain of custody, that there were experts that said that there was no... Possible way that anyone could have that type of arsenic in their body and survive an hour, and yet, so they—they—they—they they they, they just threw out, out all of, of that.
2: Yeah, they, right. I—I I want to ask you just one one other question uh, before I let you go, and that is, um, you were not allowed, you know, hair um, dye to make your hair look the same as it was when you went in. You weren't given makeup and. Fancy clothes to, to look like a woman who, who would normally you would normally have looked like instead, when you were on the stand, you looked like um an inmate. do you think that also um, played into their decision on how they judged you? Oh, I think a
3: hundred percent i mean the the difference between a man and a woman in viewing um, themselves in a courtroom or a jury viewing them in a courtroom is totally different you could cut a man's hair and put him in a suit and tie and he looks like he just walked you know in the courtroom from home and a woman you can only do so much because you're not allowed some of those luxuries you know i had a i had to get a court order to wear normal clothes and that was it that's all i had so i didn't have any i didn't have a hairbrush i didn't have any makeup i didn't have a blow dry or a curling iron I didn't have like you said hair dry I had I had a pocket a black pocket comb and that's pretty much all you have to get ready for per- making yourself presentable to how you would normally be to a jury and so if they there's there's no way for them to not look at you as an inmate and I think that the difference between genders is huge in that regard
2: Cynthia Summer, again, I am so glad you and I are speaking. Uh, you, as a free and newly married woman, and happy and adjusted woman. Um, and I am so glad that Alan Bloom uh, did such a great job um, on your appeal. Thank you for, for doing this, and I am wishing you the best holiday season and the best life possible.
3: Thank you. You as well, Ashley. Have a great day.
2: You too. Cynthia Summer joining me live tonight. Um, I also have this ahead for you. When people go missing, police are often desperate for the slightest lead or the slightest clue. Katie Ferguson's case, however, not among them. That's Katie. She is the missing mom who was en route to Wyoming with her whole family in the car. Ex-boyfriend, sometimes on, on again, off again boyfriend and two little kids. Um, That guy is the father of her kids as well, and the car made it to Wyoming With the kids and with the guy, but without Katie, which is weird, because they're all well and fine, and she's nowhere. Thing is, uh, they did find something in the car, a bullet hole, dried blood, a live pistol, and tonight we have police body cam footage from the last time that Katie was actually seen alive inside that car by anyone other than her family on that trip. How are you guys doing? Oh,
4: okay. What you guys up to? Uh. not you now. Yeah, trying to clean up, head
2: over to Jonesboro. Say it again. Try to clean up and head over to Jonesboro. How are you doing? After a break, Katie's mother is going to tell us what she thinks of that video and what could have happened to her daughter after the officer left. Her first national interview is next. At least one person knows where Katie Ferguson is. But it is very possible that only one person knows. It's either Katie herself, if she decided to just go ahead and vanish after a cross-country road trip with her on-again, off-again boyfriend and her two little kids. Uh, Or the other person who knows might be the person who made her disappear. The boyfriend? I don't know. But Katie set out from Alabama in early October with Adam Aviles, Jr. And the two young daughters that they, uh, they share. Those girls were along for the ride as well. Uh, Katie was last seen alive uh, in October. It was on the 5th, and it was in Arkansas, so they'd made some progress westward. Uh, she was spotted on police body camera. And here's what it looked like when the officer approached the family car. Take a look. How you guys doing? Oh, okay. What you guys up to? I don't know. Yeah,
4: trying to clean up and head over to Jonesboro. Say no, it again?
5: Try to clean up and head over to Jonesboro. How you
4: doing? Okay. Well, I was just seeing a door open and looked suspicious, so I had to come uh, check it out. Yeah, oh, we're heading here Yeah, we're going back. So, are you guys out of Wyoming or? Yeah. we're going back. you want going back? Yeah. Do you guys have a ID or anything? Yeah.
5: Arkansas, State. So what
4: are you guys doing over I in this area? Am I, like, traveling I, this way? You guys family, or? Uh, yeah. Well, she, she, no, she no, I'm, yeah. Was i was down in
5: Alabama.
4: Say it again. I was with my family, and then he came up. Where's um, your family? In Jonesboro? No, 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 no. It's all the way, like, way down, like, towards Florida and stuff. And his, um, I, I took the girls for a while, and we separated for a while, and then we came back together, so he drove down to see me, and... Excited
3: just
5: to get back together and take together the girl, so. yeah, this is just away from Cody
3: Wash.
2: <inaudible> okay,
1: to, uh, Alabama. Yeah, I know. I don't want really to be here. Alright, all yeah.
2: So just four days after that run-in on October 9th, Avilas was pulled over again. And this time it was in Texas, so you know, even farther west. Uh, but the problem is t- K- K- Katie was not in the car. No Katie Ferguson. The officers did see something uh, important in the car, though, and I will quote this, a projectile hole in the front passenger door. Projectile hole. Katie Ferguson's mom started to worry, obviously, and she reported Katie missing in early November. And on November 4th, police in Wyoming found the family. The uh, family Dodge Durango, um, but it was strange. It was abandoned. It was abandoned. And even stranger, inside, a Glock pistol had been left behind. And they also found ammunition, and they found Clorox wipes, and they found dried blood in there as well. Front passenger seat, and this is a very curious detail, front passenger seat was missing from the vehicle. And there were two fired rounds that were lodged in the passenger door. Avilas and the kids, they made it to Wyoming, and it seemed that they were fine, but Avilas did get arrested for being a felon in possession of ammunition. He was not arrested, at least not yet, for any charge relating to Katie Ferguson's disappearance. Mona Hartling is Katie's mom, and she joins me live now for her first national interview. Mona, thank you for being on tonight, and I am so sorry that you're going through this. Have you heard any updates at all from police or any investigator uh, working on this case?
4: Not yet. They're still waiting for the DNA results and also they're waiting for um, the towers to ping off the of Verizon. So so do
2: you have yeah. any theories that you're working on, you and your family or any other um, anyone you may have hired on the outside to help investigate, do you have theories on what happened?
4: He killed her. I know he did. I, I know it. That's my baby girl. I've raised her. She's been with me most of her life. I have four children. We all love her so much. I had four children. I have three now. He took something so precious from this world. But we believe she's gone, and that he did kill her. And he hid her body somewhere. And we just don't know where yet.
2: I am so sorry um, that you're, you're coping with so much and trying to process all of this, all at the same time while police are obviously processing evidence and potentially moving towards a, an arrest um, regarding the disappearance of, of your daughter. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about the children. They're young. I mean, a one-year-old and a four-year-old, it's, it's hard for them to sort of process anything that they see, especially if a grown-up uh, tells them yeah. what, what they see or what they saw. Were they able to right. offer anything? Were they interviewed? What did they say about their journey across the country? Um, I know that they saw something.
4: We don't know what yet. They're currently with their grandma Stacy, and she's a wonderful, wonderful grandmother. Um. But Harlow had said something to uh, investigators um, that uh, daddy hurt mommy accidentally. And also the baby, the one-year-old, she turned one not too long ago, which Katie would have never missed her baby daughter's first birthday. um, She had a big burn when she came back. And uh, it's on her wrist and her shoulder. And when asked what happened, um, the four-year-old said that she had fell into a campfire. She can't even walk yet. Katie that was extraordinarily
2: never just... curious. Right. Yeah, I can right. imagine the police are probably processing a lot more than than we know. Mona, we're going to follow the story. The the similarities between this story and Gabby Petito um, are remarkable. I hope that it is not the same result. And we'll stay on the story, and we will speak with you again. And, you know, God help us. I hope there is some resolution for you, and I hope it's good. Mona, thank you for doing this. Thank you very much. Mona Hartling uh, joining us live tonight. We'll continue to watch again. Katie Ferguson is is out there somewhere. If you know anything, if you've seen anything, say something. Coming up next, he's a notorious serial killer, and thank God he is long dead. But tonight, John Wayne Gacy is speaking from the grave in never-before-heard recordings that could reveal more possible victims. And in a remarkable irony, the man linking Gacy to even more killings is the son of the man who tried to defend him that son is with me next and he has brought the tapes he and the tapes live after the break
5: this is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer he hears things differently to the untrained ear everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding Or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call ClickGranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
2: This may be really hard to believe, but John Wayne Gacy has been dead for almost 30 years now. Man, he was executed by the state of Illinois for. Uh, torturing and killing and hiding the bodies of 33 men and boys, most of them in his basement. Um, And that number, 33, puts this killer clown on the list of the world's worst and most prolific serial killers. But did Gacy kill more than 33? Did he go to his grave with even more blood on his hands? The producers of a fascinating new podcast say yes, there are definitely more Gacy victims and possibly even two accomplices to his horrors. I want to welcome back Bob Mata to the show. He's an attorney in Chicago. He's hosted the Defense Diaries podcast and he has a very close personal connection to the John Wayne Gacy case because his father was Gacy's lawyer back in 1980. Bob, great to have you back. I know the series uh, dropped today. Um, so many questions. Wow. Talk to me about the additional victims, why you believe there are additional victims, how many and where.
5: So when we decided to take on this project, it became pretty evident to us that there was this period of time from 1972 to uh, 1975 where Gacy was living in the house with his then wife, Carol, uh, his mother-in-law, Carol's two children and his mother. So he had, he had five women and girls living in that house with them from 72 from 75 and and law enforcement and the prosecution always believed that he was dormant during that period of time we started digging in and we discovered that there was a property that he had access to where he was a maintenance man and his mother actually moved to this particular property and my partner on the on the Project, a former Chicago cop named Bill Dorsch started interviewing all the people that lived in that building after Gacy was arrested, and the things that he found out were unbelievable uh, with respect to the things that they observed during the time that Gacy was the maintenance man, which really kind of spurred everything on, and everything has kind of gone from there. In terms of the number, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, it could be four, it could be five. But the way that we look at it, if we find one and we give that victim their name back and that family closure, we consider everything that we've been doing a great success.
2: The the incredible part of your podcast is that you've got real tapes of um, audio. Uh, This is trial prep that your dad did with Gacy that hasn't been heard by the public before. And you're breaking all of this news. Set up a clip for me now that we're about to hear.
5: So the one that we're going to hear now uh, is particularly disturbing. I think there was always a misnomer about Gacy that he would get his victims were all wayward kids that were basically acting as sex workers and just trying to struggle out in the streets, and that were, was the bulk of his victims. But the reality is, is that several of his victims actually were employees for his contracting company, and John Zick was one of those kids. And John Zick only worked for Gacy for about three days, and he so happened to go into the crawl space at Gacy's instructions and dug a trench down there, and that's setting up what you're about to hear.
2: Okay, let's roll the clock. I, I, I might be just surmising it,
1: but some of them that were killed were at my house more than once. In other words, once they came and participated, second time they came back with blackmail on by and
5: rather than pay the blackmail, I eliminated him. I think he may have dug his own grave on Thursday or that Friday when they were working, or I don't—I don't know when. But I think he had dug down a bit and dug his own.
2: Bob, that gives me such chills to hear that. Um, it's so incredibly disturbing, as if John Wayne Gacy wasn't disturbing enough. And then there's this headline that you're making that there may have been accomplices. Can you wrap up that notion for me and why you think so?
5: Yeah, there were a couple of guys that that worked with Gacy, and both of them lived with Gacy uh, for about a period of uh, you know six months to a year each during Gacy's most active time in terms of his killing, which was '77 to '78. He was by far the most active out of any period of time. And, and both of these guys, like so for instance, the, the clip that we just heard with John Zick, uh, in, in the police reports themselves, uh, Gacy and on the tapes talks about him waking up with John Zick's body dead in the hallway and that he gets up, gets out of bed, walks out into the, you know, the living room and Mike Rossi is, is sitting there asleep on the couch. They then proceed to get Zick's keys, go into Wrigleyville, find Zick's car, and Rossi proceeds to drive John Zick's car around for two years up until the point that Gacy's arrested. So, you know, and they're both in the reports known to have been digging the, the, the trenches in the crawl space under the guise that uh, they were putting in drainage tile You know, when you start to put the pieces together, and frankly, during Gacy's first uh, confession, because he confessed five times when they arrested him, the first thing he asked, the very first thing that he said is, who else do you have in the station? I had help. So all of those things are are very strong indications that that he probably had help.
2: I'm plugging your podcast again because this stuff is just, for true crime fans, it's just uh, la creme de la creme. It's Defense Diaries. Again, just uh, dropped again yesterday. Uh, great series. Will you come back again? I'm not done with my questions, but we're out of time. Bob, thank you so much for this.
5: <laughs> of course. Anytime you'll have me.
2: You bet. Well, or early and often, as I like to say, Bob Mata joining us live. Okay, still to come, the other murders linked to the so-called doomsday cult mum Lori Fallow. Yes, I said other murders. New jail jumpsuit. She's already been convicted of three murders, including her own two kids. But today she was in a brand new state, brand new courtroom, brand new charges. Going to tell you who and how and when Lori will next hear the words. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, please be seated. Lori Vallow will not go quietly into the night because she's not allowed to. She has a few more trials ahead of her and some bombshell charges to fight, like conspiring to kill husband number four and conspiring to kill the ex-husband of her niece. Today she was marched into an Arizona courtroom wearing handcuffs and a whole brand new different orange jumpsuit charged with conspiring to murder two of her other relatives. And if you're keeping track, and I know it's hard on this one, uh, we're now at five people that she's accused or convicted of killing or plotting to kill. Maybe six. All in a single year. Back in May, she was found guilty of murdering her own two kids, JJ and Tylee. They were killed in the fall of 2019. She was also convicted of conspiring to kill Tammy Daybell in the fall of 2019. That's the former wife of her current husband, I know it's hard. Uh, but earlier that year, Lori's fourth husband, Charles Vallow, shot dead by her brother, Alex Cox. Weirdly, Alex Cox, Lori's brother, also died that same year, in December. But before he did, Alex Cox swore that he killed Lori's husband, Charles Vallow, in self-defense. Wow, what a difference a few years and a few convictions can make. Because Arizona prosecutors now say that... Um, that killing was planned by Alex Cox and his little sister Lori. And they're also accused of planning to kill someone else, a man named Brandon Boudreau. And he wasn't random. He was married to and divorcing Lori's niece. Somebody shot at Brandon from a moving car. Again, the fall of 2019. It's a busy time. Uh, luckily, the shooter missed. But Brandon got a good look at him and believes that the shooter was indeed Lori's brother, Alex Cox. I want to bring in Caitlin Becker. She's a senior reporter for DailyMail.com. Here is my guest. Lori Vallow's defense is going to be I didn't do it, my dead brother did. Do we know anything about her defense or is this just a great guess? This is an excellent guess. I think this is exactly what we're going to see in court. It's going to be very different than the Idaho case and the Idaho case with her children. She had to plead ignorance because she pretended she didn't know what happened to them. Lori was there the day that This killing happened. She was in the house with her brother, and her brother is not here to defend himself. We are absolutely going to see her team go in court and try to pin it on him and pretend that she is allegedly not responsible. Um, By the way, I've only got 20 seconds left, but uh, we see her in court in the orange jumpsuit with her hair done. Looks like some kind of prison makeup. We've been talking about that here on this show. Do you know anything about? What she's allowed to to do and and use, makeup, hair, any of that stuff uh, while in Arizona now? You know, I don't know the specifics, Ashley, but her appearance is something that's very important to Lori. It was important to her in the last trial, and I assume it is going to be just as important to her in this one. She seems to care when the cameras are on her. Boy, does she. Caitlin Becker, stay on it for us. I'm going to come back to you uh, because I know that, like Lori, she just there's a detail every week. Thank you for that. Appreciate
1: it. Thanks, Ashley.
2: Still to come, still more drama surrounding that woman of mystery at the heart of a San Francisco murder case. It turns out that this glamorous sister of the man accused in the Cash App murder has herself been arrested and more than just once. Stay there. A new arrest with new details in a minute. Bob Lee was very rich after founding the Cash App. And his very rich alleged killer, Nima Momeni, is now in jail, awaiting trial in March. And tonight, Nima's very rich glamour, sister Hazar Momeni, is back in the news. I told you last week about Khazar's arrest for DUI after a hit-and-run accident, November, when she was behind the wheel. Uh, turns out she was also arrested two months before. Also DUI, also another car hit. And she's fascinating for more than just her runway model looks and her obvious wealth. Prosecutors say that Hazar and Bob Lee were mainstays of the Bay Area's underground sex